from across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. First, thanks a lot for this kind invitation. It's a pleasure to be here to talk about something that has been a dream for, uh, for us for years, and we realized after having been successful that this dream was a dream for many other people as well. And, and has raised so many emotions all over the planet, I would say. So let me start the, the presentation. This presentation was supposed to be given by Paolo Ferri. Paolo Ferri is my boss, and I acknowledge the fact that he has prepared the vast majority of it. He was here in June last year, so he already gave you some hints about what we were about to do and what we had done in the past years. I will go through a bit, a short summary of what Rosetta mission is, what is meant to be from a scientific point of view. I will also wrap up a bit on what we have done in 10 years of flight to reach this comet and then focus on what has happened in the last months of 2014 and in the early months of 2015 around the comet itself. So comets, comets are something that have always, uh, let's say, raised imagination in the, in the, in the human, oops, sorry. In, in the human being. They are, they are symbols of exploration, innovation, and for us has been something like this. We have explored areas of space that we have never explored. We have explored or created operations concepts that we had never done before, not, not, nobody had done before. We had a large cooperation implementing a mission like, like this in a European environment is challenging, but ESA and Europe has made this, so it has made this possible. So it's also uh, inspirational for future generation as well. Well, comets, comets till, I would say 30 years ago, all what we knew about comets were pictures taken from the earth. Um, why is important or interesting to go and visit comets and to learn about comets? Well, comets are the remnants of the formation of the solar system. Comets were, uh, the solar system at the beginning was gas and dust that started aggregating, formed the sun, then the planets, and comets is, was, is, are the leftovers of this process. So recently I said, it's like when you build a house. You build a house, and just before the house is finished, you have to clean up the, 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 the place where you've been working. So you have concrete, you have sand, bricks, tiles, you have pieces of wires, pipes, uh, tubes, everything. Comets are exactly this, is the rubbish that you get after the formation of the solar system. And by looking at this, then we can understand maybe better how our planets have formed, our system has formed, and, in, and, the fact, in the, and at the end, also how our life may be originated during this process. So people have always been fascinated by comets. One of the first missions that actually flew to a comet or flew next to a comet was the Giotto mission from ESA. What you see here is images taken of Comet Halley in 1986. So this is the video that Comet Halley, we have Howard here, that was the spacecraft operation manager, if I'm right, Howard, of, of this fantastic mission. So this is what we knew up to 86 of comets. This is all what we had, these kind of images. Of course, the mission collected other kind of data. I let the video run again. This comet was a bit bigger than what the one Rosetta approached, but these were the type of science we were doing. Halley is a comet that is coming from the border or from outside, if you want, of the, uh, the solar system. So it's coming very fast. We couldn't stop there. We could approach Halley, fly next to it, so a flyby mission, but we couldn't map it completely. With Rosetta, we wanted to do more. So there were other comets in the history of space flight. Comet, uh, comets, sorry, missions to comets that approach other comets. Borelli in, in 2001 was approached by Deep Space One. Then we had the 
Stardust that collected some dust of a comet with uh, a capsule that when, was then returned to the Earth in 2006 or 7, I believe. Then Comet um, uh, Hartley was approached by a, a reuse of a Stardust mission to, for epoxy. This was, uh, was, uh, was uh, all what we have is this kind of picture. So these missions were all flying next to a comet. So crossing the trajectory, taking pictures, analyzing the environment for a few hours, but no more than that. Temple was hit by a, by a bullet, uh, expelled by, a, by an American probe. So this bullet hit the comet, generated a, a sort of eruption, if you want, of, from the surface of the comet, which was then observed by the main spacecraft of this mission. So this kind of mission, the, all these kind of images is all what we had till a few months ago about the comet. It's all what we knew about comets. Well, Rosetta wanted to do much more. Rosetta wanted to approach a comet, stay there, land on the comet, and follow the lifetime of a comet in its orbit around the sun. So the first thing is important to mention is that this comet had to be a comet that is in the inner part of the solar system. So these kind of comets are captured by Jupiter. They are trapped in the inner part of the solar system. They typically orbit between the sun, between the Earth and Jupiter. And these are the kind of comets we can approach, we can rendezvous with, and this is what we did with Rosetta. Well, the name of the mission is, is linked to the, the Rosetta Stone, of course, and is as the Rosetta Stone gave us the chance, the hints to understand better or more of past civilization, of past languages, then we hope that the Rosetta mission gives us hints and lets our scientists understand more the origin and the formation of the solar system. The comet we, are, we have approached is called 67P Churyumov-Gerasimenko. This was discovered in 69 by these two People. This is Vetlana Gerasimenko and Klim Churyumov. These two people were observing the sky. They discovered there was an object flying through it. This comet was given their name. All what we knew about this comet before launching Rosetta was exactly the images you see here on the, on the screen. These kind of images, some of them taken by, from the Hubble Space Telescope, from, from basically from an orbit around the Earth. So millions and millions of kilometers away. The comet was less than a pixel, and we didn't know much more than, than what we see there. Um, there was a shape model reconstructed from this observation. So we expected definitely the comet to be like a potato. You have already seen the images of the comet we'll see later on. It was totally different from what we were expecting. There's one thing, though, that worked out very well. The spin period of the comet was determined to be slightly longer than 12 hours and was exactly like this. So this technique is called light curve, observing the intensity of the pixel that the telescope measures and seeing how this is repeating over time proved to be very, very effective. This is, we, we determined the period very well. When we arrive at the comet, we proved that the period was like that. You will see that something is actually changing as well. This is the Rosetta spacecraft. This is in the test chamber of our test center in Estek in, in Holland. And you see this is the main body of the spacecraft. The spacecraft is a relatively big spacecraft. It's not the typical shape of an interplanetary probe. It's more like, it looks more like a telecom satellite. It has a big high-gain antenna in front. It's not visible here. This is what we call the backside of the spacecraft because it's never exposed to the sun. So we can ex cannot expose this side of the spacecraft to the sun. It's where we had the lander filler installed. The lander filler you can imagine as a washing machine. It's 100 kilos, but more or less the size of a washing machine. These are our start trackers, so the, the sensors that are seeing the stars and know the attitude of the spacecraft. 
Another reason not to expose this side of the spacecraft to the sun, not to blind them. And what you see here on this part here is the top platform where the vast majority of the instruments are installed and they are looking out in this direction. So they will look in that direction here. This is the Osiris camera, these two, then wide angle and the narrow angle camera. This is the Virtis spectrometer. So this is the spacecraft in the test chamber in, in Estec. Um, who operates, how do we fly such a spacecraft? Well, the ground segment is mainly based in ESOC. In Germany, still part of the European Space Agency. It's our control room where we, we conduct the, the, the most critical operation. We typically communicate with Rosetta with our deep space antennas. We have three now, 35 meters diameter. We built the first one explicitly for Rosetta in more than 10 years ago. In 2002, was ready for the launch of Rosetta in Australia. Then we built another one in 2003, in Sebreros in Spain, and then recently we had the third one in Malargo in Argentina. Rosetta is a collaboration with NASA, was born as a comet sample return mission in 1985, even before Giotto was launched towards Comet Halley, ESA decided or that the scientists wanted to do a mission to a comet. And this was a collaboration with NASA. Then NASA pulled out of this, of this collaboration, or partially pulled out. The, the mission had to be downscaled. It was not a sample return anymore. We built a lab, which is our lander file, and we brought it to the comet. But still, the collaboration remained. NASA has two and a half instruments on board Rosetta. And in exchange, they provide the station time with their deep space network. In parallel to this, there's a center in Spain, still part of ESA, that is coordinated all the instrument operations. We have several instruments on board Rosetta. In, in Europe, um, differently from NASA, scientists are spread all over the place. They work a bit independently. If you want in NASA, they have a different scheme. So we have a, a center in ESA that coordinates all these requests of operation, making sure that we have a timeline of operation of the instrument that is consistent and is satisfying the scientific wishes, needs, and objectives of the mission. So this is what our center in Spain does. So the launch of Rosetta was conducted on the 2nd of March 2004. We had a 10-year trip to get to the comet. Why so long? Well, we cannot go straight to the comet. We had to follow orbits around the sun. The rocket that launched Rosetta was not in a position to give enough energy to Rosetta to go straight to the comet. So we had to accelerate the spacecraft with planetary swing-by. We see later on what it means. The arrival was August last year, as you have seen. And the travel distance was, roughly speaking, 6.5 billion kilometers. So this number impresses many, many people. Many people say, wow, well, we on the Earth have traveled in the same time frame 10 billion kilometers because the Earth is closer to the sun. It's running much faster around the sun than what Rosetta was doing in traveling. So it's, if you are an expert in this field, then it doesn't impress you so much, but uh, I understand. <laughs> um, the orbit phase around the comet is roughly speaking, 1.5 years. We intend to ex extend the mission into next year. We'll see later on what this would mean. I was talking about the planet that is swim by. Well, you would see on this um, animation the flight of Rosetta. Here was the launch from Earth. This is the orbit of the Earth. This is Venus and Mercury, and this is Mars. So we went around the sun for a full year. Then we encountered the Earth again. That launched Rosetta out, a bit out, for the first time. Now, you will see that in a while, we'll start seeing the orbit of the comet popping in into, into this graph. So you will see that the, the, or, the orbit of the comet is much, much bigger than the one that Rosetta currently has. And here we did something unusual. We flew next to Mars, 
And we actually slowed down Rosetta. We are not on the right orbit, but we slowed down Rosetta. Why we did this? Well, to encounter again the Earth exactly in this point and to launch Rosetta, not only on a bigger orbit that starts resembling the one of the comet, but you see here that the main axis of these initial orbits was in this direction, whereas the one of the comet is mainly in this direction. That's why with Mars, we had to reface the, the swing bys with the Earth at that point here to start going in this direction. With the third swim by in 2009, we definitely then launched Rosetta on an orbit which is similar to the one of the comet. During this long trip, we crossed the asteroid belt twice. We observed asteroids. Um, Rosetta, when it was launched, was weighing 3,100 3, kilos. Uh, more than half of it were propellants, 1,700 uh, kilos. And most of them have been used just to match this orbit with this one. During this big part of the flight, the maneuvers we did with the propellant were very small. The vast majority was used here in, in deep space just to make sure that the two orbits are exactly the same. So when we were approaching the comet at the end in, in August last year, the two objects ex exactly the same orbit around the sun. And this is what we run, when, when we rendezvous with the comet. So now let's have a look what happened. Also, when we were in, 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 uh, far away from the sun, where to hibernate the spacecraft. So the, the geometry you have just seen is Rosetta was on this orbit, the comet here, and we went, when we were beyond this distance here, Rosetta had big, big solar rays, has 64 square meters of solar rays. If we put these solar rays here on the Earth, or Earth distance from the sun, they produce in the order of 8 to 10 kilowatts. When they are at those distances here from the sun, they produce 400 watts, roughly speaking. So this is not enough to maintain the spacecraft fully powered. So we had to create this hibernation mode. This was, we were forced to fly like this. There was no other option. One would say, well, why didn't you build bigger solar rays when the, the spacer would, be, would have been heavier and we wouldn't have been able to launch it on an Ariane 5. So for more than two years during this part of the orbit, Rosetta was in hibernation. So we had to sort of switch off the spacecraft, wait two and a half years, and then wake it up again. Uh, many people ask me as well, but did you have contact every now and then? No, absolutely not. Rosetta was spinning, the eigen antenna was not pointing to the Earth, and there was no chance to have any single radio contact with Rosetta. So for two and a half years, we had no contact at all. So you can imagine that preparing the, the operations that configure Rosetta in a mode like this, where you abandon it for two and a half years, was something which was definitely worrying, difficult, and challenging. Um, we... When we spun up Rosetta, we didn't want to send the command switch off without seeing it. So we made, we made the operation such that when Rosetta was spinning, so the spacecraft was spin stabilized so that we could switch off the OCS and reduce the power consumption of the spacecraft to be compatible with what the rays would do. Well, we still wanted to see that Rosetta was in the right attitude and spinning with the right rate to, before saying, yes, go in hibernation. So we, we, we oriented the eigen antenna such that the, on the day of the hibernation entry, when the spacer was spinning, the eigen antenna every now and then would hit the Earth in this strobing motion. And these are the pulses we are seeing here. This is noise recorded in our ground station. And every 90 seconds, we were seeing a pulse of two seconds. And this was the eigen antenna which was crossing the Earth direction. And we were detecting this pulse. Then we want to say, okay, we send the command. When this pulse disappears, then we know Rosetta has entered hibernation. But what, what if, for example, we send the command and we still see the pulses? 
then it's difficult to say, well, was the command wrong? Do we have the command link? So what we did, we first sent a command to modify the property of the radio signal of Rosetta. Actually, we decreased, so let's say, started modulating telemetry on top of this signal. We were not able to detect this telemetry, but the carrier, the carrier of the, the radio signal decreased in strength. So we were sure we could command at that stage Rosetta. And after another few pulses, then we send the command, switch off and go in hibernation. And then we didn't see pulses anymore. Then we were absolutely sure we had sent the right command to Rosetta. Rosetta was in the right attitude. And then we were a bit worried at that stage. This is Paolo and me. <laughs> And this is the day of the hibernation. It's not really the day of the hibernation entry, but it doesn't matter. I think it gives the idea. So two and a half years like this. On the 20th of January last year, then we started again like this. We were left like this and we... <laughs> <laughs> then we were in symbiosis, I would say, because we continuously <laughs> shared uh, emotions as well. But when we saw this small signal coming up on our screens, then the joy, the frustration as well of, of, of this period, because in the end, there's nothing you can do about this, and that you have just to wait, then came out, and uh, this was a big joy on that day. We, the, the first thing I told Paolo was, now we have our mission, because we were sure that we were approaching something like this. This is what we was waiting for us. In March, we started detecting our comet. This were, we were still at five million kilometers away, but we were approaching the comet. It was still a small pixel, so nothing more than past missions as well. But time went on and we went in May. And May we started seeing the comet moving through the sky. So this, I think you've already seen it. But you see two things. First, the comet is moving through the sky. I can definitely say that this was the expected position of the comet with uh, an, an error of 2,000 kilometers. And you see that the comet is also becoming active. In the end, we are approaching an, an active object. So some people started being worried by, by this. But in the end, we knew we are approaching a comet. A comet is an active object. So what we were doing at that stage, well, we were doing the big maneuvers I mentioned earlier on. We were approaching the comet over three months, every second week at the beginning, and then every week we were doing approach maneuver. The orbit of the comet was known before going there with an accuracy of roughly speaking 10,000 kilometers. So this is what we expected. So you can imagine that we couldn't go straight to the comet and stop there because we didn't know where it was. That's why we started taking images, doing optical navigation, and seeing how the two bodies were mo moving relative to each other. And then step by step, we were doing this kind of maneuver and slowly bending also our trajectory to approach the comet. This is what we have been doing between May and July. During these maneuvers, we have consumed 800 kilos of propellant. The other 800s we had consumed in 2011, doing similar maneuvers before going into hibernation. There's another point you can, note, can note here, notice here on this uh, plot here. You see that the trajectory, when we come in July and we get closer and closer, this, uh, you see the scale is continuously changing here. The comet is in the, in the origin of this graph. The trajectory is being bent in this direction, and the sun is this. Why are we doing this? Well, because we need to see the comet when we are approaching it. If we were approaching the comet in a straight line, then we would see only a crescent as small as half of it. We wanted to go in front of the comet to be able to see exactly where the comet was and to discover other properties that we see later on. So this is the comet seen from Osiris, 40,000 kilometers, or roughly speaking, one-tenth from the distance to the moon on the 28th of, of June. So we started seeing an object. We see an object that is spinning, and this was absolutely expected. Then we started seeing early July, 37,000 kilometers, something that was popping up as a bit strange, definitely. But we had the idea that some of the past comets looked a bit like a 
like a potato or like a peanut. And so that was not particularly surprising. The big surprise came on the 14th of July when we saw these images. This is definitely something totally unexpected. Uh, then, at this time, we started being worried because for two reasons. First, it was not absolutely clear that this would be a single body. It could have been a binary. So when two bodies are flying next to each other, this could have been a serious problem for navigation purposes, for, for, to navigate around such an object. It's very difficult to determine the gravity field around an object that maybe is with two objects that are moving with respect to each other. And the other thing is also pretty obvious that maybe finding a landing site on this object and it's not so straightforward. But we went on. So we approached the comet. These are the images, the final images on the last days before arrival to the comet. So these are taken with the navigation camera. And you will see something peculiar now. The comet will start disappearing from the field of view of the camera. It will start going down. Why this happens? Because of the uncertainty we have on the position of the comet and the uncertainty or the errors we have in implementing our maneuvers. So we implemented the maneuver. We expected the comet to be in a certain position. Then we started approaching. But if we are pointing a certain direction and I'm not here, or the comet is not exactly what I'm expecting, then I'm pointing in a direction and I don't see the comet. This is exactly what happened here. A couple of days before arrival to the comet, we lost track. So we were on a trajectory pointing in a certain direction where we expected the comet to be, but the comet was somewhere else. And we see start seeing going away. Then, of course, we redetermined the orbit of Rosetta. We reassessed the orbit of the comet. We recomputed the attitude profile and the maneuvers, and then we approached the comet in the right way. So this was happened in August. And then we started collecting these kind of images. So we started seeing the comet in its full, let's say, beauty, I would say. My, Professor from university, she's the PI of the drill that is installed on the lander. And in July, or around this time, she sent me an email saying, this comet is disgusting. Uh, I don't know, for me it's beautiful. It's the most beautiful object you can find in the solar system. I, I find it extremely fascinating, and so the scientists uh, do as well. So we collected images like this. You see this, uh, this deep neck between, we have between the two bodies. We discovered that the two bodies are not separate, so it was very good news. I have to say, though, that if you look carefully in the images, you see a, a, a sort of signature of a fracture there. Whether there is really a fracture or not, I don't know, but let's see how it, uh, how it evolves. We saw other images seen from another angle. Definitely the surface was not what we are expecting out of a comet, so it was much, more, much rougher than expected. And we started scratching our head for the landing site. Uh, I mean, this is not easy to find a, a landing site. You have to imagine that this comet is four kilometers big, more or less, in this size. And our error ellipse for landing was in the order of 500 meters. So find uh, a flat area of 500 meters on this surface is pretty difficult. This is a big wall on the comet. This wall is uh, roughly 1,000 meters high. So comet, you can imagine, also is made of ice. Let's call them rocks, even though it's not really rocks. It's much light, lighter and less uh, dense than a rock. But this is like a wall on, of the Mont Blanc or a mountain in, in the Alps. It's, they are 4,000 meters big, and this is like a wall on, on these mountains. So what happened there for the first time? Well, we started feeling the comet. Up to that point, we were seeing the comet, but that's it. We had only images, nothing else. What we started seeing when we arrived end of July, beginning of August, is also we started feeling the comet. So the comet was perturbing the trajectory of Rosetta. What you see here, I don't go in the details of the technical uh, details. This is the acceleration acting on Rosetta given by the solar radiation pressure. So the sun, the photons hitting the solar panels of Rosetta and pushing it away like a wind from the sun. 
This is the acceleration or a component of the acceleration from the sun, of the gravity of the sun on Rosetta. And then we started seeing a knee there, a perturbation. Well, this was the effect of the comet. The comet came into the loop. We were so close that even though it's very small, the gravity is extremely weak, we started feeling it. And this is exactly what we wanted to do. We wanted to measure this. Why? Well, because we need to develop a gravity model of the comet. So we started fundamentally, we started measuring the mass of the comet. And this is what we have done at the beginning of August. It's the first parameter we have measured of the comet in proximity. We measured the shape earlier on. We measured the period because we saw the images. But when we were close, then we started seeing the acceleration given by the comet. And then the closer we went here, it's more or less the 6th of August when we are 100 kilometers, 50 kilometers, 30, 20, and then 10. Then we started seeing that the, the, the effect of the gravity of the comet was dominant over the solar radiation pressure at the beginning. This is a logarithmic scale, so this is a factor 10 bigger, but it's not dramatically higher. You see that even the solar radiation pressure, just the effect of the sun, is perturbing the orbit of Rosetta significantly at, at this stage. Here is a 1%. So we have to take this into account to precisely navigate Rosetta. And the effect of the gravity of the sun disappeared because the sun was acting exactly in the same way on the comet and Rosetta. In reality, this parameter here is the difference of the gravity of the sun on Rosetta and on the comet. That's why we saw this effect when the comet picked up. It's not the end of the story. We'll see more. I said we want to characterize the comet. Of this comet, at this stage, we knew more or less the shape. We knew a bit the, the, the mass as well, but we needed more, we needed much more. So we, we couldn't insert the spacecraft straight in orbit around the comet. We don't know the properties of the object. We don't know how the object is oriented in space. We don't know very well the mass. We don't know how to navigate around it. So we have to characterize. And that's the reason why we invented this very strange orbit. This is a sort of triangular shape orbits. These are segments of hyperbolic orbits. So we were not captured by the comet. We were flying a segment like a flyby next to the comet. Then we were inverting the direction such that we could observe the comet from, a, from this point here. The sun is in this direction, so the comet was well illuminated. Took, roughly speaking, two or three weeks to complete this. And once we completed this, when we knew enough about the comet, then we could insert the spacecraft onto an orbit around the comet. This is exactly the first time the spacecraft was really on a bound orbit around the comet, 30 kilometers distance. Then we inverted the plane here, and we started orbiting the comet. So this, for me, for many people, the, the landing was the most challenging part of this mission. It's definitely true. It's for sure, it's no doubt, is the most spectacular one. It was technically the, extremely risky. But this is the phase that put me the vast majority of pressure. We had to approach the comet. The, we had to characterize the comet within a few weeks. We came in August, and we wanted to land in November. So we had a few weeks to fully characterize the comet. Eight days after having arrived at the comet, we arrived on the 6th of August. On the 14th of August, we published our mathematical models of the gravity field, of the aerodynamic that occurs around the comet, of the shape of the comet, everything that we needed to fly around the comet. We did it in basically a bit more than a week. And in six weeks, we had fully characterized the comet up to the point that we could really start selecting and decided, deciding where to land. So this, for me, was the most challenging, technically the most challenging part of the mission. So I said we had to learn to fly around the comet. Um, 
what you will see in this chart is what I call is a bit the history of navigation in general, and not only of Rosetta. When, you, when the human being started going around, started thinking, okay, if I have to go somewhere, well, there's a mountain, there is a reference, then there's a river, there's a tree. So it's using reference points. This is what we did on the surface of the comet. We selected prominent features of the surface of the comet, and we called them landmarks. These were used to see how the comet was rotating to determine its period. So I saw the same landmark coming back in my images from these triangular orbits. So I started measuring well the period of the comet. Then I started using also this landmark to see the shape of the comet. As the human beings centuries ago started drawing maps, Maps. This is what we, we did the comet. We drew, we, we did our map of the comet. Our map is a 3D shape model of the comet, and this is also what we did in the first week once we were around the comet. Why do we need this? Because once we are flying around the comet, our orbit is not perfect. You've seen the effect of the, of the weak gravity, the solar radiation pressure. It's continuously perturbed the orbit of the spacecraft. So the only way to know where Rosetta is around the comet is to take images of the comet and reconstruct where this image was taken from. So this is also another evolution of, of navigation. First, we said we measured the mass. The mass is, roughly speaking, 10 billion tons. So we were using, at the beginning, um, gravity field as the mass of the comet was fully concentrated in the center of mass of the comet. But we had also to determine where the center of mass of the comet was. We didn't know, nobody told you. And it's not a sphere. The, the center of mass of a, a shape like this, if you take a shape like this, the center of mass could be here, not in the surface of the comet. So it's something that you have to, to, uh, to be ready with your techniques, with your software, and with your models to, to, to develop. Then we went further. We used assistant navigation, as in the history of uh, um, airplanes, we had the radio navigations. Then we had our operators identifying landmarks with a computer that was helping them to identify landmarks on the, on the images that we were downlinking from Rosetta. We went further. We, went, we wanted to have more. As we have developed the GPS, the Global Positioning System, we have developed what I call the CPS, the Comet Positioning System. We have a software that is able automatically to recognize landmarks in the images that we downlink from the navigation camera and knows where this image was taken from. So this is our GPS, the, inverse of the, the, the equivalent of the GPS. All this was done in six weeks. At the end of six, our first six weeks at the comet, we were at this stage. So we've done the history of the navigation of the human being that took centuries in six weeks at the comet. So I said earlier on, there are other effects than gravity. The comet is an active object. It's throwing out gases. So it's a very dynamic environment. And the, f the closer we went to the comet, the more important these effects are. So what we started doing is also, also estimating the acceleration imparted on Rosetta by aerodynamic effects. If I got the gas coming out, we have big solar rays, 64 square meters. So we have to estimate this, these things as well. It's like wind that is impinging onto our sail. So this is the aerodynamic, the, our estimation of the aerodynamics acceleration acting on Rosetta. And you see, when we went down to already 50 kilometers or 30 kilometers, this is significant. It's 1% of the acceleration of acting on Rosetta. To model a proper orbit around the comet, we had to take this effect into account. So we created also a model of the coma of the environment of the gases that are coming out of, of the comet and how they are affecting the orbit of Rosetta. So this was a first step of refinement. Uh, you will notice something else on this picture here, that at the beginning, the effects are 1%, then we went closer to the comet, gravity goes up. But one would expect that if you go closer, the density of the gases increases, 
and then we have higher, more significant effect. This is absolutely true, but we did something else. At this stage, when we went in orbit around the comet, we moved the orbit of Rosetta. At the beginning, we were in front of, of, the, of the comet with respect to the sun. We moved the orbit on the terminator plane. The terminator plane is the plane split in day and night, so it's the plane perpendicular to the sun. The aerodynamic effects are smaller because at this stage we were pointing the arrays to the sun and the gas that is coming out of the comet underneath was impinging only on the edge of the arrays. Whereas before, when we were in front of the comet, the gas is coming out, is impinging on the full surface of the solar arrays. So we were exposing a sail of 64 square meters or maybe one square meter. So there's a significant difference in flying an orbit on the terminator plane or in front of the comet. We did this on purpose to have less effects from the aerodynamic forces on the spacecraft. So this was done at that stage. The comet was fully characterized. This, you can see the size of the comet, the small lobe or the head of the comet is roughly speaking two kilometers. The big part is four kilometers long and three kilometers wide. The mass we mentioned earlier on was 10 billion tons. We have a volume of, roughly speaking, 25 cubic kilometers. I think it's actually smaller. This was not including the, the, the dark side. Uh, the density is uh, something that can be surprising. It was perfectly in line with our expectation, but it's half of water. So if we pick up this comet and we throw it in an ocean, it floats. It's, it weights like wood, more or less. So this is much, much lighter than rock, much, much lighter than pure ice. This tells us that there's a lot of porosity in these materials. And the rotation I mentioned earlier on, we confirmed that was 12.4 hours. Our colleagues of, of the flight dynamics team are so precise in flying Rosetta, they, they could also realize something else in these early weeks. I said that we you take images and we see where the landmarks are to determine where Rosetta was. But of course, we predict also where Rosetta will be in the future. So when we're taking images, and they were finding after a while that the landmarks were not exactly where we were expecting them. What was this? Well, it's the comet that is slowing down the comet because of the gas jets that are coming out of the comet, they are acting like thrusters on the comet and it's slowing down. At this stage, we estimated that the comet was slowing down by 33 milliseconds per day. So this is where we're able to determine something. So this is a, an object which is 10 billion tons, a period of 12.5 hours, 12.4 hours in this case. And we were able to see that it was slowing down by 33 milliseconds per day. So this gives you an order of magnitude for the accuracy we are achieving with the navigation of the spacecraft around the comet. The instruments were already fully operative. One of the major uh, results was, there was a lot of expectation on, 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 the, on this result, was the Rosina instrument. Rosina is our sniffer. It can sniff all what is around, around the comet and discovered that the type of water that we have on the comet has a different concentration of the deuterium with respect to the water that we have on the Earth. So this was one of the major or the first results people were expecting from the comet. I'm not a scientist. I'm not going to speculate very much on this result. I'm only saying that it was pretty obvious already before that water on the Earth wouldn't come from this comet since it was still in space. Um, <laughs> we were left with aerodynamic effects. We are orbiting a duck. You have seen the shape of the comet. It's a duck. I mentioned earlier that we assume at the beginning that the whole mass of the comet was concentrated in the center of mass. Well, at a certain stage, this was not enough. We had to be much more precise than that. We had to model further 
you can imagine that the gravity field, the shape of the gravity field, of a shape that is something like this, is not very particularly regular. So we had to model the harmonics of the comet. We had to measure and model them into our system. So this is what we did more or less in October. Uh, you will see here the components of the, 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 of the harmonics of the, of the gravity field acting as accelerations on Rosetta. At the beginning, they were much, much smaller than the, the main gravity than the, than the aerodynamic effects. But when we started going down to 10 kilometers, then we saw effects. It was a big difference if we were flying at 10 kilometers distance from an object on the side of the small lobe or the big lobe. The attraction, the gravity coming from the comet was totally different. Well, this you see it here on these bumps here. This is exactly this. This is the rotation period of the comet acting differently on, on Rosetta, depending on which side of the comet we are flying over. So this we had to model as well, because when we wanted to go down with the lander, we had to be much, much more precise than what we were at the beginning. So selecting a landing site, where then we started creating maps with illumination maps, uh, maps of the surface of the, of, the, of, the, of the comet. We started looking into the possibility of reaching certain points or not of the surface of the comet. We started analyzing descent trajectories for the lander itself. And the scientists came up with five potential landing sites here. You see them plotted on, on this picture here. There were three on the small body or small part of the comet and two, one here and one here would be in this region here on the main body of the comet. I would say, I must admit, the most fascinating one is this terrace here that is sitting just in front of the big wall. This would, would have been perfect. It's like being on a terrace in Chamonix and look at the, at the big wall of the Mont Blanc. But okay, you will see in the next slide that uh, this is the terrace I was talking about. It's only 100 meters wide and 200 meters long, so it's relatively narrow. But the big problem of going there when we run our analysis was this, that the descent trajectory that we could design would have been flying far too close to the small body, or to the small lobe of the comet. So we judged this far too risky. It would have been extremely nice, but it was far too risky to, to, to go there. So we changed our mind. And the winner in the end was this landing site called J. So on the small lobe of the comet next to the big crater that is on top of it. And this is the area we, you, we can see with the cross exactly in the target point. So all the scientists were enthusiastic of this landing site. This is the landing site, I think, let me see that. It's more or less somewhere here next to this boulder here, the center. And more or less this circle here represents our landing error ellipse. So we had an uncertainty estimated of 500 meters, so this is a circle of 500 meter radius. You can easily see that the surface there is not fully compatible with landing condition. There are cliffs, there are boulders, so if we are hitting, for example, landing there or here, that we wouldn't have been able to land. We knew, but this was the comment we were given. For me, it's still beautiful, even though it's a bit like this. And we tried our best to, to go there. So this is another view of the landing site. This is our target point. You see here in, the, in, in this case, you see better the, the cliffs, the, the slopes where and the lander was not compatible with all these conditions. But okay, this is something, that a risk we had to, to take. There was no other chance. Either you do it, you dare, or you don't do it at all and you stay home, you don't fly to a comet. So on the 12th of November, then the, the critical day came. So when we started doing our operation, I mentioned earlier that one 
the biggest challenge of Rosetta is to control its position around the comet. So to deliver the lander, the lander was going down in a ballistic way. We were shooting it out of Rosetta and one partially falling because of gravity of the comet and also because we shot it down in the direction of the comet. So what was fundamental was to release it exactly at the right time. This was easy because everything is time tag on board the spacer, the clock is very precise, but in, mainly in the right position with the right velocity. Um, just to give you an example, the, you will see later, the descent of the lander lasted roughly 10 hours. You know that it's seven hours after separation, but it was roughly seven, uh, 10 hours from the last time we controlled the velocity and the position of Rosetta. So this was what counts, because the lander is fully passive. So if I have a, an error of one centimeter per second in the velocity of Rosetta, propagated for 10 hours, this is 360 meters. And then you can understand that only for this component, just purely taking this into account, then I hit the vast majority of the 500 meters. So we had to be much more precise in controlling the velocity of Rosetta than one centimeter per second, leaving apart aerodynamic effect on the lander, position errors of Rosetta, just take the velocity, one centimeter per second. Keep in mind these two objects are flying around the sun with 20 kilometers per second velocity, both of them. Rosetta is orbiting the comet, in this case, with velocities in the order of 20 to 40 centimeters per second. And we control this velocity with an accuracy that is below one millimeter per second. So this is the, the, term, the, the accuracy we are achieving in this. So I said, this is the trajectory Rosetta, the orbit Rosetta was flying just before landing. This is where we diverted the trajectory of Rosetta towards the comet to have the lander going down towards the comet. The lander was separated here with a slight separation velocity. Then the lander would hit the comet. And Rosetta, even if it was not doing this maneuver, would not hit the comet, would fly next to the comet and fly away. Rosetta had to do this maneuver, call it escape to maintain visibility of the lander during the descent. If we had flown straight here, Rosetta would have gone in this direction, the lander in this direction, then we wouldn't have seen the lander going down, we wouldn't have seen the radio signal coming from the lander. So what we did here? Well, 11 hours before T0, we checked for the last time the orbit of Rosetta. So we downlinked images from the navigation camera, we determined where Rosetta was, and we projected into the future where Rosetta would be at this point. And what we did as well, basically we said, is the lander ready, is Rosetta ready, can we meet this point of the orbit and the trajectory properly? Yes, so we designed at this point here, in these hours here, we designed these maneuvers here. So the one that was diverting the flight of Rosetta towards the comet. Then we did the maneuver, it was two hours before separation. We did this called pre-delivery maneuver. Rosetta was turned into this direction. Then we double-checked 20 minutes before separation. We double-checked that everything was okay on ground. All this with 30 minutes propagation delays, of course. So we checked that the maneuver was okay, and then we gave the final go for the separation of Phile. Phile was separated at around 8.35 <coughs> on board Rosetta, Zulu and started going down towards the comet. As I said, Rosetta shortly after did another maneuver. It's called escape here, but it's not really escaping from the comet. It's just to maintain visibility with the lander. And a couple of hours later, Rosetta was in a position to be turned and observe the lander going down. 
So landing was occurring seven hours later. So you see that these two hours plus seven hours is nine hours. This is the period over which you have to propagate the error in position and velocity originally of Rosetta. And this is projected onto the surface of the comet. And this is the error we have on the lander. So yeah. you, you will see an animation here of what exactly was happening. This is exactly the separation time of the lander from Rosetta. Rosetta will sh now is maneuvering with the thrusters, it's going away. This is what you have seen. This is the theory, then we see what happened in reality. This deployment of the arrays, the lander was slightly, uh, sorry, of the arrays of the landing gear. The lander was slightly turned and started its own descent toward the comet. You can also see from these images that the comet was turned 180 degrees in the other direction. The period is 12 hours. We're going down this side. Seven hours later, the comet has to be rotated in the right direction. Now we see this sequence again. This is purely ballistic. The lander is going down to the comet. There's no propulsion system, nothing like that. So it's just because we, are, we have shot the lander in that direction, and also the gravity of the comet is pulling the lander down and down. So you see the comet here is rotating. The lander is approaching the final side. Now we'll switch to a different view. And then we see what the lander was supposed to do. This is the tar our target area. We should go somewhere there. So this is the ice crews going in the terrain. The harpoons have been fired underneath, so the lander is anchored. To the, to the ground and starts its own operations. There's uh, several instruments on board the lander doing operation. Here is, this, is taking the panorama image of the, of, the, of the comet itself. These are the seven cameras of the panorama imaging and it's starting taking images of the of the surface of the comet this can as a resolution of some millimeter this roll is camera and it can rotate to the most adequate position to perform further operations. This is an arm it's called Mupus this instrument can come out and as a probe, you can go down, measure the strength of the surface of the comet, and it's meant also to measure the, the temperature inside the comet under the crust. It's the, one of the other, the other instruments collecting some dust from the surface, and we should see the drill, or maybe it has already operated. So as I said, this is theory, is what was supposed to happen. It went slightly different, as you perfectly know, uh, we'll see now how it went, but it gives you an idea as well, this, this animation of the operations of the lander that the lander has anyhow done somewhere else on the surface of the comet in a slightly different way, but still we have achieved a lot. Um, we have seen the lander going down. Well, this is real images. This is images taken from onboard Rosetta of the lander going down. You see the time scrolling here. And this is taken from the Osiris camera onboard Rosetta. Unfortunately, Rosetta couldn't observe early, maybe I run it again, earlier than two hours after separation. We was doing other things. Then we had to rotate the spacecraft. And this is what we, the images we took. 
Then we go from a, to a, a slightly different view. This is another image taken from Rosetta. You see the lander here, barely see it, and it's approaching the comet. Then this is an image taken by the lander itself on the way down. This image was taken from a, at an altitude from the surface of rough, I think, three kilometers. Oh, yes, it's written here, sorry. <laughs> Uh, this is part of the, of the landing gear of the, of the lander, which was already deployed. Then is the final approach. Here we see the lander in three different shots. This is 20 minutes before touchdown. You see the lander there. Well, you can see it again here. here. The landing area we are aiming at is somewhere here. So it's, this is nine, uh, 11 minutes before touchdown. Then this is the last image taken by the camera that is underneath the lander. So this is taken from an altitude, I think it's nine meters, no, 40 meters, 40 meters. There's another one with higher accuracy with all the boulders in the area where we then touch down. And here you see the touchdown of the lander in this composition of two images. Yeah, first you see an effect, there's a plume, and then you see file and its, its shadow appearing on the surface of the comet. So this tells us that basically the lander has touched down and bounced away. So this is where we want it to go. This is where we touch down, is less than 120 meters away. So I would say we've been pretty precise. Uh, I said the comet is look, looks a bit like the Mont Blanc. Okay, take the Mont Blanc. We want to land on a precise point on one of the glaciers of the Mont Blanc. We take a washing machine that weighs under kilos. We go up at 22,000 meters, so twice the altitude our aircrafts are flying. And we drop this washing machine out of a plane flying <laughs> with high winds, and we hit the Mont Blanc on the other side of the football pitch. I think it's acceptable. It's not an own goal, but uh, I think it's, uh, it's acceptable. So this is what, where, uh, what we can see of the landing site or the touchdown point itself. Here you see also, this is the last, we, we start seeing the three um, footprints of the, of the lander, and then we see the lander flying away. This was nine minutes after touchdown. The lander is still in flight. I don't remember exactly what altitude here it was, but it was a couple of hundred meters. It, was a, it bounced away with a velocity of 38 centimeters per second. So the lander was landing with a velocity of one meter per second, so walking speed. It bounced away, bounced with 38. If it the escape velocity on the surface of the comet is 50 centimeters per second. So if the bounce was a bit stronger, then the lander would have gone back in orbit. This is the footprint. I think this was one of the iconic images of spaceflight together with this one. This is something that we have left <laughs> on the surface. I think it's one, maybe I'm not modest, but I think these are the, among the two biggest achievement in the history of, of space flight. And I think we, we observe it also from the emotions that all, all, all this history of Rosetta raised all over the place. Well, this is the image in the end where we landed. Uh, of course, we were a bit disappointed when we learned that the lander didn't anchor on the surface, went there, we had difficulties in operating it. But the first time I saw this image from, with Jean-Pierre Bibring, Jean-Pierre Bibring is the, the, one of the lead scientists of the lander and is responsible for the camera. He told me, well, we've been extremely lucky. Had we landed where we wanted, would have been extremely boring. During the landing site selection <laughs> process, we always had fight with the scientists. They, wanted, they always told them, we don't want to go where it's flat. It's too boring. Also because there is dust. We want to see the pristine material of the comet. And the pristine material of the comet is in the cliffs, in the crevasses. Yeah, but how can we land there? Well, we touched down where we wanted, and we went where they wanted. <laughs> so... 
this, oops, sorry, this wall here is 80 centimeters away from the camera itself. And this is really the pristine material of the comet. So this is exactly what the, some of the scientists on the lander wanted. So in the end, it didn't work perfectly, but we have landed, we have collected an enormous amount of data. We completed the first science sequence of the lander, which was this three days based on non-rechargeable battery. And then we did other, we took other images here. They start seeing rocks with the cracks and they start investigating all this. This is up to them now. We have done our job. We delivered the lander, the lab on the surface of the comet. Now it's up to them to exploit this data and all what is behind these images. Well, where is Philae? A question that many people ask us. Well, I start from this image here on the bottom. This is the point where we wanted to touch down. This is where we touched down the surface of the comet. This is the last time we saw Philae flying. And this is the area where we expected Philae, or we expect Philae to be, so where we started searching. Uh, this is also confirmed, not only from having calculated the trajectory after these two points here, but also had an instrument, which is like a tomography, this concert instrument. There's a radio on the lander and a receiver on Rosetta, so they throw uh, radio signals out of the lander, they go through the nucleus, and they do a tomography of the nucleus. Where you, we use this instrument to try to locate Philae on the surface. Philae was active, we didn't know where it was, but we were receiving radio signals. So this, Philae, this um, instrument can also measure the distance between the two signals, and we definitely determined that the highest probability Philae would be is in this area here, with these two points having highest probability, and this is the top probability where Philae is. So that's why we know that it's more or less in this area. So going more precise and a different picture, we expect Philae to be somewhere here. So far, we haven't been able to locate it. We'll do some activity as well to, to try to locate it, but the mission continues. The mission is much more than Philae. I would say that maybe 80-90% of the science of this mission is coming from Rosetta, the mother spacecraft. Philae was doing, contributing maybe with the most spectacular part with 10-20% of the overall science. And out of this, even though it didn't work completely, it has achieved, in my opinion, the order of 70-80% at least. So, so far we are, we are very high in the in success rate from a scientific point of view. As I said, the mission continues. These were the orbits uh, when we delivered Philae. Then uh, on, we started the relay phase where we had contact permanently, almost permanently with Philae, except when the comet was rotating. And then we slowly maneuvered back into orbit around the comet to continue the science for the other instruments. So Rosetta has been orbiting the comet since December up to, up to January. Why up to January? Well, we'll start looking where Rosetta is now. When we came out of hibernation, we were here at 4.5 astronomical units from the sun. Then when we landed, we were at three astronomical units, and slowly we are approaching, this is the sun distance, the yellow line. Slowly we are approaching the, the sun with the comet. Today we are somewhere here at two astronomical units. So you can imagine that the comet is becoming more and more active, and it's, the jets are building up. So the aerodynamic effects that were disturbing us at the beginning are more and more important now. We see images where the jets are becoming stronger and stronger. Just to give you an idea, the gases coming out of the comet, they travel a few 
kilometers away from the nucleus so where Rosetta is flying, roughly speaking, 800 meters per second. It's very high velocity. The density is extremely low, but also our spacecraft, I said earlier on, is very big with these big solar panels. We are a big sail exposed to wind. So this is disturbing the trajectory, and we are slowly changing the trajectory of Rosetta to be able to cope what we, what we have here with the environment. I said at the beginning that we were observing the change of rotation period of Rosetta, 33 milliseconds per day. This was in September last year. Now these jets have become so important that the rate of change is one second per day. So every day, the period of the comet, 12.4 hours, increases by one second because these jets are slowing down the comet. Will not slow down completely, I, I bet, but uh, it's, it's definitely something we have to take into account and something I would have never thought of. So, what, are the, what do the scientists want to do now? Well, this is what they ask us to do. Fly these kind of orbits around the comet. But you've seen the environment is not exactly uh, something straightforward to fly in this kind of orbit. So, this is where the wish is, and this is what we offer them. <laughs> so, we said there will be a point in time where we cannot stay anymore on a bound orbit around the comet. We have to go back to this sort of flybys because the activity is so high that this orbit is not stable anymore. The aerodynamic forces are so important with respect to the gravitational forces that we cannot fly anymore a bound orbit. So we have to go back to hyperbolic arcs of trajectory and combining them you can get a shape like this. In the end, the reality was something like this. This was at the end of January. We were still orbiting the comet. So, and we started going away from these orbits with the maneuver, I think, was on the 6th of February or, or 4th of February there. And then we started this sort of set of flybys. We are alternating flybys where we are going far away from the comet, up to two, 300 kilometers as well. And then every now and then we do a flyby that goes very close to the surface of the comet. The first one was done on the 14th of February. We reached six kilometers from the surface of the comet. It was eight kilometers from the, from the radius, the, 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 the orbit, so from the, from the center of mass of the comet. And this is exactly what we are doing now. So you will see at the end, it's not exactly the shape they wanted is not exactly the shape we offered, but this is what we are flying right now with Rosetta. So we have recently reconsidered this. We have realized that there could be a way to fly a couple of bound orbits as well with some constraints. We have offered this to the scientists. They are considering this. And maybe in September, after the perihelion, perihelion is in August, then we will consider maybe going back to bound orbits. So this is the image we have taken during the flyby, and this is the shadow of Rosetta on the surface of the comet. So this is also as well something that for me, it was totally unexpected because um, when we fly very close to the comet, the effect of the gas is very, very important. And we cannot predict extremely well the position of Rosetta. But the pointing of Rosetta is not done, there's no automatic system that points to the, the comet. We program the attitude in an inertial uh, reference for Rosetta. So we program to be like this, but if we were 200 meters ahead or behind on the point I was, I wouldn't be able to see the comet or the shadow. We were expecting off-pointing with respect to the predicted direction in the order of 10 degrees. In this case, we flew much, much better, and the shadow of Rosetta still fell full in, um, into the field of view of the camera, so we could capture it. Um, 
Just to give an idea of the size of the comet here is above London, and this is uh, the Mont Blanc transferred onto London. So this is what we are talking about. Where are we now? Well, we are orbiting the comet with hyperbolic flybys. We, have done, we will do the closest approach to the sun on the 13th of August. Many people ask, will the comet uh, be destroyed by the sun? No, no, the comet is still farther away from the sun than what the Earth is. The Earth is 150 million kilometers from the sun. On the 13th of August, the closest point to the sun for the comet will be 186 kilometers, a million kilometers away from the sun, sorry. <laughs> so this is no, there's no danger that the, the comet will be destroyed by the sun. The mission is planned till the end of this year, but we are discussing to extend it into next year. It's so successful. The spacecraft is working very well. The instruments are, as well are working very well. So I have little doubt that the mission will not be extended into next year. Uh, technically, we would have to hibernate again Rosetta in January 2017, because we are, would be again at 4.5 AU from the sun, where we have to hibernate again. We're most likely we are not going to take this risk. It would cost uh, a lot to maintain the systems active through another hibernation, which instead of 2.5 years would be more than three years because the orbit now is bigger, is longer, and is slower at that stage. So nobody wants to embark on this, also with the high risk of not uh, having the spacecraft waking up. We took the risk once, went well, I think we had enough. So most likely, but it's not determined yet, what we will be doing towards September, October next year, which is 4 AU from the sun with the limit where we can operate the instruments, then we will start spiraling down towards the comet, maybe taking higher risk, bigger risk in maneuvering Rosetta around the comet and maybe observing the comet from different points. There are people that want to fly through the neck, so it's something that we might want to do. It's challenging, but uh, at that stage we, we could consider. But in the end, I think we will let the spacecraft crash on the surface of the comet. Also, this spiraling down over several weeks could be a fantastic opportunity for several of the instruments to observe the comet from much closer distances. We can take the risk at that stage. So this is what we, we will do. If you want to follow, ESA is providing nowadays a lot of many information on the, on the, on the web and various uh, tools as well. I want to remind you that I'm here. I've also received a lot of personal, um, let's say, exposure during the history of Rosetta. But you, you cannot do the, anything like this alone. There's a big, big team that work on Rosetta. Rosetta was conceived in 85. It took 10 years to, for ESA to convince itself that it was worth implementing this mission. It took another 10 years to develop it, another 10 years to get to the comet. And I believe now we'll take more than, we can exploit the scientific data of Rosetta for, for much longer than 10 years. Thanks a lot for your attention. From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. 
If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.